Blog Talk Radio. Belong. 
our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We're then we'll follow by today's theme, part two, Kwame Ture and Liberation. We try to give you maybe what you need and not necessarily what you want. So on that note, let's get started with our party. We now will bring in, we'd like to welcome Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamathi Mashoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness, and of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. But one of the things I got to make perfectly clear to people in terms of the uh, ordeal that we're confronted with in this society, uh, one of the things we, we have to understand is we have an enemy in plain sight. And the enemy I'm referring to is, is corporate America, and it's important, that I, I, it's important that people understand this reality. But before I get into this question, specifically in terms of you know, uh, corporate, corporate America as an enemy, one of the things we have to fundamentally understand in terms of international affairs, the reason why Af- uh, Russia is currently under attack has a lot to do with going back to 1917. Uh, during 1917, Russia actually uh, threatened the West by imposing ideas which the West found in, uh, somewhat uh, in opposition to the tenets or to the, to the values of capitalism. Russia proposed that we have a system by which uh, people were treated fairly in the workplace and that people had some say-so in terms of their, their, their economic affairs. As such, when you talk about profit, making profit, uh, the idea that those profits would be shared, uh, be shared fairly uh, with the working people was something that Russia advocated. Of course, in the West, the capitalist class were adamant opposed to any type of fairness. And so as a consequence, anything or anybody or any country that, that, that alludes to or seeks to bring into existence uh, a situation where people are treated fairly is perceived as an enemy by the West, in particular the United States. So when we talk about countries like Russia, China, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and now El Salvador, uh, and Eritrea, these countries are under attack not because they did anything to the United States, but because they, they pose a real fundamental uh, dilemma for the United States in terms of uh, U.S. ability to exercise uh, ex- uh, maximum exploitation of people. And so, therefore, these, these countries is a direct indictment in terms of this whole principle in terms of one's right to, to uh, exploit his fellow fellow human being. And so therefore we should understand, so when we see America attack these countries around the world and understand that first, that, that we have to understand that it's important that we, we understand that when, 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 they, when they do that, it's, it's, a, it's a direct re- result of the, uh, this notion that, in front that, that a small cobble of individuals, uh, or small cobble of capitalist individuals have the, have the right uh, or the, the moral imperative to actually impose their will on the world. And so when we talk about, you know, the beings of people who are impoverished around the world, it's a direct indictment of the capitalist system uh, under the guise of corporations uh, that facilitate this kind of suffering and this kind of inequality that permeates throughout the world. Now, to the question in terms of the corporations as, as the enemy in sight, I want you to check this out, Brother Africa. Now, much this discourse centers around the role of the Federal Reserve for little focus on the mission of corporations. Corporate structures are directly implicated in rising global debt an impoverishment of over 2 billion people throughout the world. Non-financial corporations, businesses not associated with money lending, saw debt increases in excess of $13 trillion in 2020, with $10 trillion of that debt belonging solely to U.S. corporations. In view of this level of corporate debt, one has to wonder why creative destruction or the elimination of indebted corporations have not occurred. But the answer lies in the historical evolution of corporations. Now, current corporate structure 
owes its origin to early 18th century Europe. Corporate structures endorsed by early European settlers finding a home among American colonialists who embraced this familiar structure so as to facilitate trade with Britain. This structure proved effective, and by late 18th century, over 300 corporations were established in 13 colonial colonies. With the rise of corporate structure came the realization business activity must be constrained by political oversight because of the potential for monopoly power and the undermining of citizen interests in carrying out the business agenda. People like James Madison reasoned unfeathered business power in conjunction with their hands on the purse strings inevitably creates difficulty for political institutions. Madison's words proved pathetic. In 1819, business interest was able to compel the U.S. Supreme Court to address their concerns independent of the impact business decisions would have on the public. The Supreme Court ruled the oversight of businesses by legislative policy was deemed inadmissible, and businesses were now free to pursue their interests without regard to burdens imposed on society. Pursuit of total business control did not end with rudimentary court ruling. What business leaders sought was total autonomy of their business dealings that maximized opportunity for maximum profitability. This feat was accomplished by utilizing laws that provided a platform for free blacks to contest discriminatory practices in court. Under the Equal Protection Clause, business leaders argued in court pursuit of economic gains were compromised and freedom of association were constrained by overzealous laws that were fundamentally unconstitutional. This strategy was very successful. Uh, business leaders prevailed big time. Now, the strategy was so successful, it served as a precedent for Citizens United ruling in 2010, where the Supreme Court ruled corporations are like people and blew with the same and with the same rights and privileges. What is interesting about these cases are the subtext. Implicit in the court's readings of these cases are three elements that embodies the uniqueness of corporations and to the extent corporations are empowered to pursue, pursue their goals. They are, one, pursuit of profit could never be considered criminal when pursued by corporations. Only individuals face criminal charges. Two, investors will be shielded from defective product liability. And thirdly, corporations were free to pass risk and costs to consumers. Known as externalities, the practice of passing the cost to consumers is very lucrative for corporations. For example, the Los Angeles Rams plan to build a $6 billion football stadium which citizens will subsidize. The irony is, upon completion, most people would not be able to afford ticket prices to view a game. Monies that could be used for community development or affordable housing is instead given to wealthy owners who will only magnify their wealth at the expense of the taxpayers. Now, unapologetically, corporate mission is to maximize profits, pure and simple. The ill effects are predictable. People, the rank and file, are merely means to an end where transfer of wealth from the pockets of the poor into wealthy coffers continues undisturbed. This formula translates into systematic exploitation of the poor that transcends every aspect of the poor's life. Ill treatment of poor people manifests itself concretely in the, in the manner corporations manage workers. Corporations in 2018 accounted for 5,280 deaths, of which 4,779 deaths were in the private sector. Injuries accounted for a significant increase toward this statistic, with 2.8 million people hurt on the job annually. The dignity of being compelled to labor under precarious circumstances is bad enough, but when this indifference by the corporation manifests itself as attempt as contempt for humans, 
It is reflected in, in the rejection of compensation claims by injured workers. Employing numerous strategies to avoid compensation of the injured, two of the more colorful exemptions stipulates, one, compensation does not cover certain injuries on the job, and two, statutory definition which defines a real laborer for workers. Now, we're talking about fully employed workers who, who do not meet the vague criteria of denied compensation. Now, corporate indifference far exceeds the disregard shown workers, but extends to society generally. Profit at all costs is the corporate mantra. Mantra, But what happens to society when the pursuit of profit preempts the well-being of the entire nation? The answer, pure and simple, death and, death and disease. 2019, U.S. government allocated $732 million to the Food and Drug Administration for food safety inspections. Owing to effective lobbying by corporations, inspection of food decreased 18%, visual inspection of imported food declined 25%, and, and sampling imported products decreased by 21%. Consequently, as a result of corporate prowess, 17,000 cases in salmonella in the U.S. Now, according to the Center for Disease Control, infection rates are more ominous if, if, e, if e. coli is included statistically. Over 1 million people contact bacterial infections from food yearly in the U.S., 20,000 annual hospitalizations, and 400 preventable deaths per year. This is the same corporate structure that consistently lobbied against the public's right to know what's in the food the public consumes. If humans are perceived as little else than than consumers, we cannot, we cannot be surprised. Corporations hold little or no value of people or, or the lives of people. If humans lack intrinsic value outside of enriching corporations, what does it mean for the overwhelming numbers who lack resources to spend? What corporations look upon, what, what corporation, might corporations look upon such individuals as expandable? If people are viewed as useless, isn't the logical course of action to get rid of them? one way or another, it's a certain question that we have to ponder as a society, and I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Are you there, Brother Moses? While we wait for Brother Moses to pick up the mic, we will will go to Okay, we got Brother Moses. Brother Moses, we got you. The mic is Hello. yours. Hello, yes, Brother um, Moses. Greetings. Go ahead. Hello, Brother Aspen. Greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Um, women hold up half the sky. I support the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-E-S. And uh, the struggle continues uh, again to defeat the few, the 1%. And this, this ideology of, of, of profit-driven uh, government um, must be defeated. And um, we need the United Men to defeat the few. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we now bring you Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, 
Welcome to Africa Unwound. Good evening, Brother Africa and fellow panelists and our listening audience. My name is Eleanor Johnson, and uh, I'm happy to be with you. We see that Israel uh, continues to uh, murder children in the occupied territory. We also see that uh, President Barack Obama and uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., as well as Reverend Al Sharpton, are taking a look at uh, 10 years after the death of Trevon Martin, who was killed by uh, a neighborhood watch uh, participant. So there's a lot to do, and we together can move forward. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. Thank you for being here, Sister Eleanor. Now we're going to do something a little different this time. We're going to make a quick transition to what's going on in our world community. But, Brother Haki, start out really interesting in terms of this question of uh, the question of banks and how they control uh, the lives of daily people. What we're going to do right now, we're going to play, go back down to Remembering Lane. We're going to play this feature um, article that we had before on who control our money. And when we come back, we're going to continue this broad discussion. So we'll be right back, and we're going to let you know who control all of your money. You are watching Cold Fusion TV. A simple kind of drama around the fighting blind eyes open when the rhyme smoking from the writing. Gentle giant shining arm up on the track, soft back that relation, then we put it on wax like that. Welcome to another Cold Fusion video. I'm going to start this video off with a quote. Henry Ford once said, It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. I quote this because it encapsulates the fact that the contents of this video may be unsettling compared to the videos that I normally make. I still feel compelled to make this video because I've been exploring the financial world for the last four years and it's definitely given me a more complete view of the world. I want to share some of what I've come across with you guys. I'm also going to do a video about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin in the future. And to understand why Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies may continue to rise, it's critical that you understand the contents of this video. I hope that you find this topic interesting and that it inspires you to do your own research afterwards. Now, with that said, let's begin. So who controls all of our money? It's a simple question. We all know that you and I don't control it. Our employees don't control it. The companies that they work for don't control it. So who does? Where does it even come from in the first place? I'll give you a hint. Money does not come from the government. It's a seemingly obvious question that's never asked or taught in schools for some reason. Unfortunately, most people's lives are basically dedicated to money. It's all people ever worry about or talk about. We go to school to learn basically how to go to university, to learn the skills to get a good job, so that we can trade hours of our lives all for this thing called money. So why wouldn't you want to know where money comes from and who issues it? Today, in this very special video, you're about to find out the answer to the question of who controls all of our money. People today can tell something isn't quite right with our financial system, but they just can't put their finger on it. Some people think it's the failure of government, others think that it's the failure of capitalism itself. This video should clarify a few things. 
The year is 1694 and England had just suffered through 50 years of war. Exhausted, the English government needed loans to fund their political means. Brainchild of Scottish banker William Patterson, it was decided that a privately owned bank that could issue the money to the government out of thin air was to be the solution. This was the very first modern central banking system in the world. Central banking is more influential than laws, governments and politicians, but strangely not the focus of the general public. Fast forward to the early 20th century and after two failed attempts, a group of bankers wanted to put a central bank in the United States of America. It was December of 1910 and Senator Nelson Aldridge boarded a private train car in New York with six others. The six were not to be spotted by any news reporters to avoid questions. Their destination? Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. The meeting went for nine days and from that they created the Federal Reserve System. This is all documented and a matter of public record. Some of them went on to write about the meetings in their personal biographies. Here's a quote from Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York, February 9th, 1935, in the Saturday Evening Post. I was as secretive, indeed as furtive as any conspirator. Discovery we knew simply must not happen, or else all our time and effort would be wasted. If it were to be exposed that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. The six men that Nelson Aldridge brought together included the head of banks, branches of government such as the Treasury, and some of the richest people on earth at the time. To give you an idea of how rich they were, in 1910, these six men represented a quarter of the world's worth. The bankers told the American public that the purpose of the system was to stabilize the economy and to stop the grip of the Wall Street banks over America. The problem was, the guys that wrote the bill were the very same people they said they'd stop. If they succeeded, it will give a small group of men the ability to create money from nothing and loan it to the American government with interest. So why was it done in secret? Because the American people didn't want a central bank. Back then, unlike today, people knew what central banks were and understood them very well. Everywhere a central bank went, there would be wealth inequality, wild swings between economic booms and busts, and after each bust, those at the top of society mysteriously came out richer while everyone else got poorer. Europe was the running example of this at the time. The Federal Reserve was originally drafted as the Aldridge Bill, but when it came into Congress, they recognized Senator Aldridge's name and smelt a rat. The bankers needed better cover. They decided to send two millionaire friends to carry the bill to quell the suspicions of Congress and renamed it the Federal Reserve Act. Next, in a textbook lesson of deceit, the bankers set out to fool the American people through disinformation. In the newspapers of the day, the bankers screamed and protested against the new Federal Reserve Bill. It would ruin the banks, they exclaimed. The average person read the protesting articles of the bankers and thought to themselves, if the bankers hate it, it must be good. And then they ended up unknowingly supporting a Trojan horse. The bankers also fooled Congress by putting clauses in the bill that limited their power only to remove them once the bill was passed. A double head fake of the public and Congress was all it took. The bill was passed on December 23, 1913, while most of Congress was out on holiday. And with that, a small group had complete monopoly over the issuing and creation of American money. Today, the Federal Reserve is the most powerful entity in the United States, and they're not ashamed to admit it either. Here's former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan. 
what should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States? Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means basically that uh, there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. What the relationships are uh, don't frankly matter. In addition to this, it seems that the Fed can't even be touched by investigating parties. So I'm asking you if your agency has, in fact, according to Bloomberg, extended $9 trillion in credit, which, by the way, works out to $30,000 for every single man, woman, and child in this country. I'd like to know, if you're not responsible for investigating that, who is? We actually, we have responsibility for the Federal Reserve's programs and operations, audits, to conduct audits and investigations in that area. Um, in terms of who's responsible for investigating, would you mind repeating the question one more time? Mr. Chairman, my, my time is up, but I have to tell you honestly, I am shocked to find out that nobody at the Federal Reserve, including the Inspector General, is keeping track of this. So what does all of this have to do with me, you might be asking? I don't even live in the US. Well, two reasons. Number one, the central banking model from the Bank of England and the United States has now been put in all countries and even consolidated power in parts of Europe as the European Central Bank, or ECB. This unites separate countries under one economic policy. The only places in the world that don't have central banks are North Korea, Iran, and Cuba. In 2000, this list suspiciously included Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. And number two, since the end of World War II, the US dollar has been the reserve currency of the world. This means that all central banks hold U.S. dollars in their reserves. In other words, all other currencies are backed by the U.S. dollar. This directly links your country to the Federal Reserve's monetary policy in America. More on this later. When the post-World War II monetary system, called the Bretton Woods system, was created, all U.S. dollars were backed by and exchangeable for gold. A byproduct of this was that currencies used to be very stable in relation to each other. Before that, all the countries, the exchange rates were fixed, and year after year you could predict what prices were going to be. You could start a business elsewhere, know if you were, you know, you could calculate profits. Business was much, much easier before floating exchange rates. Unfortunately, in 1971, due to a falling US dollar, international capital flows into gold, and the funding of the Vietnam War, President Nixon took the US dollar off the gold standard. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. Now the dollar was floating and backed by nothing and has been ever since. Okay, so let's think a little. If the US dollar is backed by nothing, but the world's reserves are backed by the US dollar, intrinsically, since 1971, doesn't this mean that all currencies are now backed by nothing tangible, only trust in the American government? Well, this is correct. Money backed by nothing is known as fiat currency. Fiat in Latin means let it be done. In other words, the government says it is money, so it is. A consequence to having money backed by nothing is that whenever the Federal Reserve creates money, it dilutes the currency supply of all other nations because their reserves are backed by the US dollar. All countries' reserves are worth less each time money is created. In the past few years, the Federal Reserve has printed trillions of dollars and countries like Russia and China have noticed this. 
As a reaction to the money printing, these countries have been selling US dollar reserves and buying gold over the same period. But wait a second. Some of you clever thinkers out there may have asked yourself, if every currency on earth is backed by nothing, how am I able to pay for things? Well, as it turns out, the whole economic system today is running because it's backed by faith. Faith that you can exchange your unit of currency for goods or services. In a way, part of that faith comes from the fact that not many people actually know where money comes from. We're about to find that out in this video. A central bank is essentially the entity that manages a nation's money supply, and it can loan money to the government with interest. In the United States and most other countries, it works like this. When the government needs more money than they receive from taxes, they ask the Treasury Department for money. The Treasury then receives an IOU or bond from the government. The Treasury through the banks gives this IOU to the Federal Reserve. The Fed then writes a check for this IOU and hands it to the banks. At this exchange at the banks, money is created and it can be used to pay government bills. So hang on, where does the Fed get the money to be able to write this check? They get this money from nowhere, they literally just invent it. Here's a quote from the Boston Federal Reserve, quote, when you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money." End quote. So in essence, they're writing a check and creating money from an account that has no money in it. The money the Federal Reserve creates can be used as legal tender to buy things and eventually makes its way into the real economy. If you and I did that, we'd go to jail for fraud, but they can do it because they invented the system. This is the same system used throughout the world today. Another part of this money creation happens at the commercial bank side. Every time you take out a loan to buy a house, car or TV, banks create money out of nowhere to give you this loan and you still have to pay interest on it. And don't just believe me when I say that. Hear it for yourself from the horse's mouth, the people running the system. Graeme Towers, former governor of the Central Bank of Canada, states, quote, Each and every time a bank makes a loan, new credit is created, new deposits, brand new money. End quote. Paul Tucker, deputy governor of the Bank of England, quote, Banks extend credit by simply increasing the borrowing customer's current account. End quote. So what they're basically saying is that each time the bank makes a loan, the bank doesn't use other people's deposited money and give it to you. It creates new money. In modern times, this means typing digits into a computer. 97% of all money is digitally created like this. Only 3% is the physical cash and coins that we carry. Another crazy thing that commercial banks can do is lend out 10 times more money than they actually have in reserves. This is called fractional reserve lending. So who wrote this ridiculous system into law? For the United States, it was part of the Federal Reserve System drafted in 1913. And again, this is the same system used throughout the world. So what's the issue? Why should I even care? Well, there's consequences. When more loans are given out, more money is created and the rest of the money in circulation is worth less and less as the years go on. This is known as inflation. In a way, inflation is basically a tax that we all pay for the fraud of money printing. Easy money now in exchange for tax on our future generations. It's also why in 1950, a house used to cost $7,000 and a car, $2,000. 
Obviously, this is no longer the same today. Things will always keep getting more expensive as long as this system is in place. This was actually kind of okay because wages grew in relation to inflation until about 2008. Why this stopped happening is a story for another day. So things are already pretty crazy, but they get even crazier. The more you look into it, the stranger things become. So remember how we're talking about how central banks and commercial banks can create money out of nothing? This procedure actually does create something. It creates debt. Let me explain. When you take out a loan, it's written down as an asset in the bank as a negative form, kind of like a negative value of money, or otherwise known as debt. Under this system, debt is actually money. And again, don't just listen to me. Mariner Eccles, former governor of the Federal Reserve states, quote, if there were no debts in our money system, there wouldn't be any money. So in essence, instead of gold being the backbone of our economy, it's now debt. The system we're under now is sometimes referred to as the debt-based monetary system. It requires that debt always grows. Countries and people must become deeper in debt so that there's more money in the system because remember, debt is money. If people and governments stop borrowing money and pay back loans, the debt doesn't grow, the money supply shrinks, and the system falters. It truly is bizarre, but we all live in this system each and every day. The Federal Reserve and other central banks control money by adjusting its supply and how much it costs to borrow money, otherwise known as the interest rate. With these tools, and as a consequence of human group psychology, central banks can create booms and busts in the economy at will and also distort and derail an economy by messing with it. Let's take a quick case study. In the year 2000, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan cut interest rates to 1%. He did this to try and fight off a recession from the dot-com bubble and encourage people to borrow money. When interest rates are low, if you're borrowing money, you save a whole lot on repaying mortgages. Since the 1% interest rate hadn't been seen at the time since the 1950s, it was a pretty good deal. Greenspan's idea was that he could create a wealth effect. People would start to buy houses, the prices would go up, and the people would feel wealthier and spend more money in the economy and stimulate it. Greenspan sure succeeded in getting people to borrow money to buy houses, but they borrowed too much, and the result was the 2008 housing bubble. This is a prime example of what can go wrong when central banks mess with an economy. Yes, corrupt bankers have a lot to answer for on their role in the 2008 crisis, but the Fed has a far bigger long-term impact. Even crazier things are happening in Japan. Their central bank is buying so many stocks that they were the number one buyer of Japanese stocks in 2016. So they have part ownership of companies with money that they created from nothing. So in essence, it is the central banks that control our economy and the central and commercial banking system together that control all of our money. The difference is central banks can create money at will while commercial banks need loans to create money. To give you an idea of people's views of central banking when people actually knew what central banks were, here's a couple of examples. In 1881, then-President of the United States, James Garfield, states, quote, Whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce, and when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled, one way or another, by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate, end quote. 
Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography stated that the prime reason for the American War of Independence was a battle over who actually controlled and issued the money of the new colonies. Moving on to more modern times, Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman states, quote, The Federal Reserve definitely caused the Great Depression by contracting the amount of currency in circulation by one third from 1929 to 1933, end quote. So with all of this being said, some would argue that central banks are not inherently a bad thing. They just need to be part of the government and not privately owned. The government should be able to issue its own money for the benefit of the people and shouldn't have to pay a massive interest on its own debt. This was tried at least once in the United States by President Lincoln, who stated this. The government should create, issue and circulate all the currency and credit needed to satisfy the spending power of the government and the buying power of consumers. By the adoption of these principles, the taxpayers will be saved immense sums of interest. Money will cease to be master and become the servant of humanity. Abraham Lincoln then issued his own government money. It was called the Greenback. No further comments on that story. So I think we'll end the video there. There's so much more that I could cover about what central banking decisions led to what revolutions around the world. Pretty much when you look at it, all revolutions and all wars, when you dig through everything, it all boils down to money. I could also have talked about the new global movement of those who are rejecting the debt-based economic system. People are starting to move their currency into gold, silver and cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That's a whole nother story for another day. Anyways, if you've watched the whole way through this video, congratulations. You're one of the few who have found out the hidden truths about who controls all of our money. I think I've only met about four people in real life that have been aware of the debt-based economic system. It's strangely unknown, but is as true as anything. I even showed you all of the quotes of the bankers and the former heads of the Federal Reserve telling you from their own mouths how the system actually works. If this is your first time hearing all of this, I encourage you, as I said before, to do your own research and then you'll start to see the bigger picture and the world today will make a whole lot more sense. If you want some good starting resources, I recommend Mike Maloney's Hidden Secrets of Money series. It's here on YouTube and I'll leave a link below. Mike is a very knowledgeable guy and I've had some great long conversations with him about the economy. If you are into reading and you want to know more about the history of the Federal Reserve, I recommend the book by G. Edward Griffin, The Creature from Jekyll Island. So anyway, I think I'll stop talking now. Thanks for watching this video. This has been DeGogo. You've been watching Cold. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Today's date, 27 of February, 2020. We're discussing what's going on in our world community. And just seeing this clip, clipping or who controls all our money, I think that's the essence of what's going on which is how we are being played and the capitalists are being paid. Brother Haki, earlier you talked about this whole question about finance and banks, and this is to supplement some of the issues that you had raised earlier. So when we talk about what's going on in our world, they stated that if the people really knew and understood what is the role of central banks, they would have a revolution. What is your response to um, what you took from what you just heard, uh, period, Brother Hackey? <clears throat> Brother Alfred, you're absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, what Henry Ford said and what you articulated, uh, that if people were knowledgeable in terms of how banks actually operate, you have a revolution tomorrow. It's very, very true. But most people don't know how the system operates. They, they have no clue in terms of how the finance system operates. 
they've been told that this is capitalism and that you know capitalism is the greatest system in the world, and that in fact that is uh, responsible for all that is good. Of course, you and I understand, you know, fundamentally, you know, that's that's an erroneous assumption. But clearly, brother Africa. So when you think back in terms of these these these, these the, the evolution of central banks, I mean, think about the six capitalists, uh, the very wealthy individuals who actually started this project. Uh, we should understand that when we talk about the Federal Reserve, we understand we're not talking about, you know, something that's ran by the government. You're talking about private individuals, private individuals who were the Federal Reserve as though it was a private bank. And, of course, as a private bank, their focus is not on what is in the interest of society. Their interest is on profitability, how much money they can make. And so when we talk about the kind of policies that the, that the, central, the central banks endorse, then we've got to understand that what they do has nothing at all to do in terms of betterment of society. So all this unemployment, all this homelessness, the mass incarceration rates, the, uh, the hatred that exists in society among, among people, all this is a direct result of CIA, uh, not CIA, but uh, central bank imperatives or central bank, uh, central, central bank policies. It's no mistake. It's all by design. And all these things, one of the things that the article alluded to, when you talk about, you know, that, that debt, is, debt is money under the debt-based monetary system. He's absolutely correct. And one of the reasons why it's so important to keep people indebted, and when we talk about when you, for instance, when you buy a car or you buy a house, you talk about the enormous interest rates applied to those two things. The whole point is to keep you indebted. It's not about economic, it's not about economic, you know, um, uh, 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 making things, you know, economically uh, possible for people to achieve. In fact, it makes more sense if, from a business perspective, if you, in fact, if you, if you, if you sold a car at a reasonable price based upon people's earnings, then in terms of business value, it actually would enhance the number of cars actually sold. But, it, but, but if you did it that way, if you actually sold people uh, assets or cars or property uh, based upon you know, what's reasonable, then you can't accrue profits. So as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, it's about profits. So when you sell that car or when you sell that house, you have an enormous interest you have to pay back. And that is the whole point. That is how you gen- that is how you ge- how you generate how you generate money. Uh, this as far as the, the 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 Federal Reserve is concerned, is how you stimulate the economy. But don't get it confused. The stimulating economy, as far as the Fed, Federal Reserve is concerned, is not the same as stimulating economy as most econo- you know economics professors understand it. So when they talk about stimulating economy, they talk about well, how money is going to be created for the interest of the ruling class, the interest of the wealthy, and so by creating this debt. Uh, what happens is that this debt has to be repaid to someone. Who does it get repaid to? Well, of course, it gets paid to the pe- repaid to the people who own all the access, which is the wealthy. The wealthy, in turn, are taxed by the government at a very low rate, so they obtain a, the, the, the bulk of their wealth is retained by the wealthy. That is precisely the plan. That is the idea. This is what people understand. So in that context, it's important that we understand that when I say people that we're enemies of the state, that people understand this is not hyperbole. This is not an exaggeration. This is this is how the system works, and this is so. We talk, for instance, like for mass incarceration. Earlier, I talked about mass incarceration. Oh uh, well, at least I alluded to mass incarceration. Oh, no, I didn't. I, I'm sorry. I got my my, uh, my facts all twisted here. But in case of mass uh, mass incarceration, brother Africa, one thing is very very ironic when you talk about the um, when you, when you talk about the expansion of, of the prison prison facilities, despite the fact that uh, the number of crime is actually decreasing, but yet the, 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 the expenditures for prison facilities actually continue to increase. The question is, why would the 
prison expenditure actually increase when crime is decreasing. Well, it's very, very simple. The capitalists understand, given how the Federal Reserve operates in terms of, you know, how money is, how money is spent, how, who receives money, who doesn't receive money, they understand by giving the money to the wealthy people, they create a deficit for the, for the, for the economy. By creating a deficit for the economy, people don't have access to jobs, to houses, to schooling, and so forth, all those things that they need. Well, you've got to have some, some institution by means to, 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 to actually absorb this large number of people who, in the, in the eyes of the Federal Reserve and the government, are esoteric, those people who are unimportant, those people who must be dealt with one way or another. Well, the only way you do that is prison expansion. And so when we talk about, you know, uh, when we talk about corporate America spending to the tune of $5 billion a year just for, for prison expansion, you understand that's a, that's a method to the madness. They're not doing it simply because, uh, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's they're, they're concerned about crime. They're doing it because they understand quite well that given, this, given the fact how capitalism works, given how the central banks conduct business, they understand that the number of people who are homeless, the number of people who are unemployed, the number of people who are hopeless, the number of people who are desperate, the number of people who are impoverished, the number of people who are suffering, then all of them are going to increase exponentially. So you've got to have some, some, some way in which to control those large number of people who don't have any way of participating in this economy. But keep in mind, when I say they don't have any opportunity to participate in this economy, that is the direct result of Federal Reserve policy. That is precisely what they want. You see? Because by having large, large, by having large, large number of people who are, ex, ex, who are, are, are disposable, it means that those people who do have access to money, it means that you, you actually enhance, you enhance their power. So increase, you create a scenario where people with money are perceived almost like gods, and the rest of us are perceived as like something like something like um, uh, something equivalent of uh, uh, dust on, on the bottom of someone's shoe. Uh, the human the human beings without capital have no have no real intrinsic value, and because they have no real intrinsic value, what you do to them is unimportant. And so the, 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 the government understands this, and all this is quite impossible because you talk about a situation where people. Uh, in the Federal Reserve, people who own the Federal Reserve, and matter of fact, there are eight families who own the Federal Reserve. And so when we talk about those people who own the Federal Reserve, then understand that they understand that the world doesn't have any use for people who don't have any ability in terms of contributing to the economy. So people are poor, people who are on fixed incomes, people who are, uh, are people who are unemployed, people who are uh, jobless, or people who are uh, um, uh, people who are not formally educated. All those people are drained on the economy as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned because their mandate is not to give a damn about the masses of people. Their mandate is maximum profitability. And like I said, maximum profitability is achieved by actually keeping increasing the number of people impoverished. Is, is that crazy or is that crazy? Well, people have to understand that. But the eight people who I'm talking about who own the Federal Reserve, and I hope people understand if they don't, if they don't, if they don't hear what I'm saying uh, so far, at least grasp this point. Of the eight people that uh, own the Federal Reserve, and, and because the Federal Reserve is privately owned, it's important that we understand who those eight people are. Now, here's the eight families that own the Federal Reserve. The Rothschilds out of London, Goldman Sachs out of New York City, Rockefellers out of New York City, the Lehmans out of New York City, Coop Loeb's out of New York City, uh, Warburg family out of Hamburg, Germany, Lazars out of Paris, Israel Moses Self out of Italy. These people own the, 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 the central banks throughout the world. These are the wealthiest people on the planet. 
And unfortunately, people don't understand the nature of the, uh, of the beast in terms of how the system works. But one other thing, brother, I want to ask I'm going to, go, I'm, I want to bring up and I'm going to conclude. It's important that we go back to the housing debacle of 2008 because one of the things the media did, they, 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 uh, they, they presented this, this, this narrative which says that people are responsible for their own problems that, that, that they, uh, that they uh, eventually um, um, uh, found themselves confronted with. The bottom line, the housing debacle of 2008, the subprime debacle, was all part of a plan. Wall Street had decided in terms of ways to maximize their profitability. Wall Street, in particular, had to figure out a way in terms of maximizing their profitability. Their profitability. And one way they could do maximize their profitability, it was to tell working-class people that you have the opportunity to buy a home. But what they didn't tell working-class people is what they would push them into these kind of uh, 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 investment schemes or these, these, these Morgan financial uh, situation where um, they would not have fixed-rate fixed rate, uh, interest rates. They would have adjustable rate interest rates, which means that the interest rates are, co- are constantly in flux as opposed to a fixed-rate interest rate. Say if you've got a fixed-rate fix interest rate at, say, uh, 4%, then you know that's what your interest rate is going to be for the duration of, 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 of your loan. But adjustable uh, adjustable uh, rate uh, uh, rate rate interest uh, goes up. So what happens is that because it's the way this, the, the system was structured, when these people take out those loans with adjustable rates interest, what it meant is that their 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 annual payment was guaranteed to balloon every month to increase monthly. There was no way humanly possible for people to maintain those houses when the payments balloon monthly. They knew that, but it was all about transferring wealth from the poorest people, and the Federal Reserve was a, a big part of this. It was all part of transferring wealth from the poorest people to the wealthiest people. The impact has been devastation. I mean, it's been, it was devastation. It was, it was, it was, um, uh, it greatly, it greatly undermined the economy. But the thing is that we have to saying about it, it really didn't matter that it undermined the economy because the incentive, the purpose of the whole subprime debacle was to put wealth in the hand of the wealthy people, and it, it's, it's, it exceeded in doing that. And as, and as a result of that, uh, prices continue to rise even to today, which means, so when we talk about debt, the, the level of debt that people have to con- contend with today is a direct result of what happened back in 2008, but it's precisely what they wanted. So now you're paying exorbitant prices for used cars, exorbitant prices for a little a one-bedroom apartment, Exorbitant prices for a two, two, two bedroom house. Exorbitant prices for food. Exorbitant prices here. Exorbitant prices there. It's all part of the game, and this is what people have to understand. And and, and 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 most importantly, I certainly hope people begin to understand. When I say that people are superfluous, when I say that people' existence on this planet are esoteric, that the people in power have no use for poor people, I want people to understand clearly. When I say that, it's not an exaggeration. They have, a, they have a very unique problem, even when it comes to mass incarceration. It comes to a point, even when you, when you uh, incarcerate people on a mass level, even then it becomes counterproductive economically because of what it takes to feed all those people you incarcerate uh, uh, makes it impossible to maintain that system, which means that they have to impose an additional system in terms of maintaining control, which is why the, nat- the National Defense of Office, National, National Defense um, NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, this is why they talk about internment. They're talking about putting people in concentration camps. This is why they set several areas in the United States apart solely for the purpose of terms of interning people, putting people in concentration camps. It is precisely why they're doing this. And people got to understand that all this, all this stuff, all these problems that they're confronted with, 
is a direct result of the capitalist system, you know, uh, uh, working under the guise of the Federal Reserve in terms of facilitating all the misery and suffering, needless misery and suffering that doesn't have to happen, except that you've got a cabal of people, of rich people around the world, a very small number of people around the world, who are sociopaths who are determined uh, if they can't if, if, if they can't control the entire world, then they're willing to destroy the world. So this clearly we have to understand that the threat is real, and we've got to do some very deep thinking in terms of you know how the system operates, how it's managed, what it does, and why it does. Thank you, brother Haki. Brother Anthony, we've been listening to a documentary on who control all our money, and in essence. It gave us a history of the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank system and how central banks historically has always been a tool for a few and wealthy and impoverish everyone else. Now, just understanding this whole history of the Federal Reserve system and the history of capitalism, can you ever have security? Can you ever have enough money to be secure under this particular system, understanding how it is structured and how the reserves systems work. Your response, Brother Anthony? Uh, no, you can't. Uh, because, and, uh, and it's one of the weaknesses of capitalism in that it depends on people's uh, level of consumption rising forever. However, uh, that's not possible. Your uh, 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 an individual, an individual's ability to consume is limited, at a minimum, by, sta- by, 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 by space and time. I mean, individuals only live so long on the planet. So, uh, so that's one limitation. Another limitation is it infringes upon other people right to consume. So that's another constraint. So an individual's ability to consume the resources of the planet, no matter how rich they are, is limited by time and space. So, uh, you know, uh, so and that's one of the, re- uh, the weaknesses of the capitalist system. I don't care how greed an individual's grade is. There's a limit to how much they can consume within a lifetime. And that is, uh, and in addition to the points uh, Haki made earlier, that is, uh, that is why capitalism is in such a crisis right now. Sister Eleanor, it seems to me that we are playing the game of monopoly. They even stated that this money that people are using has no value. It's illusion. It's a fiat. has no value at all. If they got us playing a game of monopoly, how do we get out of this craziness? What do you take from this particular documentary? Sister Eleanor, the mic is yours. Here, that we... Um, thank yes, you, Brother It would appear that we would need to uh, learn more about banking and banking investment. But more importantly, it uh, shows the urgency for uh, workers 
to take control over the means of production and uh, over the product of their labor instead of uh, having it go to the bosses. Uh, this is uh, definitely uh, monopoly capitalism. And uh, inflation is a byproduct of this uh, uh, worthlessness, this money, the devaluing of, of, of money. You've seen a house that, uh, as, as uh, Brother Haki said, you see a, a, a two-bedroom home that uh, 25 years ago may have been uh, – uh, $100,000 now, suddenly it's, it's uh, nearly a million dollars, depending on where it is. So you see this incredible inflation. And uh, inflation is like a tax on the people. So believe me, somebody's paying, and it ends up being the working class people. So uh, it, it, uh, to answer your question, uh, you asked, would you rephrase the question for me, Brother Africa? Uh, I was just asking. Go ahead, sister. I was just asking you in terms of just. I was just you in terms of looking at the system. You know, it's got us playing a game of monopoly. We're dealing with fiat money. It's a world of illusion. How do we get out of this illusion? That was my question to you. Well, um, how we get out of it is uh, very complex. I am not quite sure. But I do know this, that it's caused an incredible, uh, uh, it's caused the inflation rate to skyrocket. And suddenly things like used cars are are so expensive. And... Uh, it's just uh, exploitation of the working class, the the working poor, and the middle class. And as Brother Haki said, in a surplus labor economy, the whole thing is exploitation and surplus labor that lives in subhuman conditions. So what's going to have to happen is that uh, the we're seeing an increased decline in, in our quality of life. Uh, homelessness has become just a phenomena that we accept, and we see uh, homeless people amongst us every day, and we see a decline in 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 the quality of life for everyone, a decline in education, decline in health care. So the way we get out of it is to politicize, educate the masses, and to organize. That's the only thing we can do at this time. We are not in control of the banks. Um, I would always say um, it's important that people use credit unions, that they use uh, smaller banks that are controlled by the masses. Uh, Credit unions are that sort of thing, whether it's the teachers' unions, uh, credit union, or or or, you know, your small credit union at work to make sure your money are in those places and to look where your money is, where you're, you're cashing your check, where, uh, where, you're, where you're, your credit cards are drawn on. Make sure that you um, are investing in your community 
financially. So I would say investing in, I've already said it, uh, credit unions and, unions and small in, uh, uh, or community-owned uh, resources in terms of money. That's where uh, we, we begin to take control and take power as as individuals. Thank you, Susanna Noah. Brother Moses, talk to me. They say that um looking at this documentary who control all of our money, it's clear that the author has displayed a picture of this entire system being a criminal enterprise. Since it is a criminal enterprise, um how do you come to respect a system that, that is a criminal enterprise. What do you take from this particular documentary, Brother Moses? Well, this is, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors uh, involved. It seems like in this uh, in this ex- explanation, uh, of, it's either um, the, the um, I don't know if it comes from 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 the objective situation or what, but. Uh, um, um, uh, there's some. Un- I, I, I've got to really study this thing a little more because um, there's, there's some missing pieces here. It's uh, uh, not making sense. Um, um, I know that um, politics determines economics, and it was the the political arrangement between the oil producing comp- companies OPEC and uh, and the, the U.S. administration at the time, Nixon, and, and to to get them to trade in dollars, and uh, and that's and that's so that so that the dollars are more t- tied to uh, the political economy through oil and its association with oil and being traded uh, on the world market. Uh, but but I mean, it seems it's more complex than. Uh, then I'm, I'm, my imagination is not, it's not, right now, it's for, for lack of a, a <laughs> lack of a, uh, a better knowledge of so it's a high pay, so high pay you know, grade, and, uh, and I'm, 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 I've, I've studied, 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 but there's some missing pieces, and I need to study some more. And, and nothing wrong there. with that, Brother Moses. There's nothing wrong with that, because this whole world, they won't have it. As like the temptation would say, in a state of a bottle confusion, but we're gonna diffuse all this confusion here on Africa on the move. All right, let's continue to move forward. This is um, the 27th of February. As we talk about African History Month, one of the things we must talk about when we talk about this whole question of what's going on in our community is again this whole question and this is a continued fight for power and control over Africa. Let's listen to this documentary, and I would like to come back with my political panel analyst, and I'd like for y'all to give y'all a critique of what you got from this particular article. The title is The Race for Africa. Why Africa? Why Africa? Today we'll talk about Africa, once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflict poverty, and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. 
then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese, 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics, every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli Prime Minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. 
The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this even after the U.S. president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries, including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia, and Tunisia. For the U.S., Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the U.S. suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the U.S., Africa is now a new front to take on China, and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the U.S. State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future. Thus, we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung Project of 1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defense partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s, Africa was colonized with force, in 2020, it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora. It is spending big money. It is selling its movies, culture and currency. China extracts raw materials. It manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something? What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa. And just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus, co-presented by Skoda. Simply clever. Today we'll talk about Welcome Africa. Once seen by Europe. As Welcome back to the Africa on the Move. We are discussing what's going on in our world and the community. At this point in time, we've we just listened to a documentary titled The Race for Africa. Brother Haki, it had um, made a really interesting point. One of the interesting points that he made in the documentary, and I'd like to respond to what you heard, was that it said Washington, D.C. Uh, is doing 
has used Africa as a war zone. You know, for walls down many ways how they make money. So what do you think they mean by Washington DC has looked at Africa as a war zone? Well, before I answer that question, Brother Africa, some of you asked earlier in terms of what can we do in terms of combating the fiat currency that currently exists. A couple of things we can do. Uh, number one, uh, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can refuse to, to use those fiat currencies, those, those dollars, and as opposed to spending them, just hold on to them. Uh, that certainly was for some change if they get a sense that those dollars are not circulating through the economy. So that's one of the things that we can do. Secondly, I think the thing we can do is like like Eddie's on El Salvador is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is 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 is, is good because it's beyond government control. Uh, the U.S. government is can't uh, can't control it. So therefore, what you do with it, how you do it, uh, what you use it for is beyond government intervention. So they cannot you know arbitrarily come in and say, for instance, confiscate your 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 Bitcoin simply because you know you you uh, because of some quote unquote uh, financial obligation you have with the government. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, those are the things we can do, but those things have to be done on a mass level. Uh, individual level is good, but if you do them on a mass level, then you, you will get some, some, some results. Uh, to, to answer your question, Brother Africa, the question in terms of um, why, is Africa, why the Washington, D.C. consider Africa uh, a, a war zone, well, uh, for one reason. America sees Africa purely simple as, 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 a, as a giant colony. Uh, Africa only only um, importance as far as the U.S. is concerned is for its raw materials. Point blank, it's very simple, very very simple. And so when we look at the function of the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and we look in terms of you know, the process in terms of loaning uh, or, or providing credits for Africa, those credits come with stipulations. Often those when most African states receive those credits, they are not free to use those credits in a way in which is most effective in terms of enhancing the economy. They must Follow the dictates of what what uh, Western, in particular, United States, uh, follow is pre uh, is dictates in terms of how the money should be spent and what it should be spent on. So clearly, uh, you know, uh, the the whole the whole the whole impetus impetus as far as U.S. foreign policy is concerned is to maintain dominance over Africa. And so one of the things that when we talk about these military interventions in Africa, and I think this is I think is key. I think all these military interventions have never have anything to do in terms of the empowerment of African people or the African continent per se. It always has to do in terms of some some vital uh, some vital uh, uh, geopolitical interest that it has. Uh, one of the things that you see in this insurgence of uh, of uh, a military into Ethiopia now, and this is somewhat unprecedented in terms of the large number of troops headed to Ethiopia. But now you see them heading to Ethiopia because Ethiopia has dared to disagree or, or to not to participate in its own oppression. And so when the IMF and World Bank seeks to, to stipulate the terms of those credits uh, provided Ethiopia, Ethiopian government said, no, 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 we're not going to play that game. You know, we're only going to accept that, which, that, that money which we can truly have control over in terms of revitalize our economy. Well, of course, one of the things that we talked about earlier, we talked about the significance of debt. So what Ethiopia is saying to America is that we're not going to accumulate debt just so you can prosper. Whereas as far as America is concerned, those are, those are, that's, that's, that's war. Uh, so what happens is that they're sending troops over to Ethiopia and under the guise of helping the, uh, of, of, uh, assisting the Tigray in terms of their struggles against the, uh, the Romo uh, uh, who are currently in power there in Ethiopia. 
Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, so when we talk about a war zone, understand that all of this war, all this military activity that takes place in Africa has nothing to do in terms of the interests of Africa. And then you've got to ask yourself this question. Why the hell do Africans continue to allow access to Western states in Africa? Why do they do that? Well, I got to tell you, one of the things when you start talking about geopolitics and you talk about the, 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 the ability of Western states uh, to corrupt, the ability, you know, to identify the most corrupt individuals on the planet, on the continent, uh, and, and, and so recognizing who they are, to be able to position to actually bring them to power, and so they're more than willing to carry out U.S. or Western policy, even though that policy uh, disadvantages or, 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 or impoverishes Africa. It doesn't matter. Because for them, it's all about, you know, individual power. It's all about individual wealth. And so they're willing to do that. And in closing, Brother Africa, I always have to say that one of the things we talk about is the war zone. The reason why um, the war zone will continue to be, uh, why, why the U.S. continue to treat Africa as a war zone, until Africa understands that, you know, you, you're not going to take on the West unilaterally. You have to work together. It has to be 54 states working together to prevent the West from imposing this will on Africa. If you don't have that, they're going to pick off African states one by one. And that is precisely what they're doing. But for some reason, uh, African leaders, uh, because of the, the level of corruption that exists on the continent, many of them refuse to even to engage that question. And so there's a consequence. The last time they even discussed you know, African unity or, or pan-Africanism was in 2012. So clearly, the West's ability in terms of corrupting, bribing, or the bringing into power the most corrupt elements in African society has been very, very successful. So I think unless you have some very strong movements coming from the masses of people on the continent, uh, those who haven't been corrupted, who have been co-opted, those who understand that there is a future for Africa, unless they come to fruition, unless they come into power, then clearly many of these African leaders are content to allow Western states to impoverish them as long as they they they, uh, they prosper individually, so I think in that context, Brother Africa, we can anticipate uh, Africa will continue to be the war zone as far as the U.S. is concerned. Thank you, Brother Haki, Brother Anthony. You know, war comes in different forms. There's psychological warfare, which is going on against African and African people, for example. You often hear people talk about Africa as a poor continent. But how can Africa be a poor continent when everybody going there and coming back out rich? How can that be, Anthony? I don't understand that. Your response, Brother Anthony. Sure. One, uh, the documentary pointed out that Africa is divided into 54 states. And uh, I think uh, that's critical to understanding its weakness, its lack of political unity, which Nkrumah warned against uh, 50 years, uh, over 50 years ago. And uh, and uh, let's see, and you have uh, a lot of powers in the world competing for Africa's resources. That's why. And that's why it's so easy to corrupt Africa with resources in this case, because 
it is divided into 54 non-viable political entities. Not uh, not one of these entities could defend themselves against a military attack if they were attacked by one of the imperialist countries competing for Africa's resources. Libya is an example. And as a result of the invasion of Libya, AFRICOM is all over Africa tonight. And I think that is a key reason why, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, scramble for Africa's resources is intensifying. Because uh, the, uh, the moderator of the documentary pointed out that uh, half the world's gold, uh, 90% of the world's uh, coltan, and uh, two-thirds of the world's uh, platinum is in Africa. And uh, so there is this mad scramble going on for the control of the resources of Africa. And because Africa is divided and weak at the present time, there are a lot of countries that are taking advantage of that and trying to extract as much as they can out of of Africa uh, you know, while uh, before, you know, the conflict intensifies. And that is why Africa has to get united. And uh, only Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism can solve its current problems. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, you know, this question of a race for Africa, many people believe that it started, it started as far back as 1884-85, which the Europeans called the Scramble for Africa at the Berlin Conference, where they came together collectively to determine how they would deal with Africa and African people globally. Now, one of the reasons why they can be a race for Africa, I believe that Malcolm X stated clearly 70 years ago in terms of this is the condition they had to create in order for this to take place. Listen to what Brother Malcolm stated 70 years ago, and I'd like to have your response as it relates to this question of the race for Africa. Brother Malcolm stated, stated that they marked your names and you change your name. They made fun of our clothes, and you change your clothes. They made fun of your hair, and you brought in freshener, an air freshener. They made fun of your skin, and you brought bleach. They mocked your tongues, and you adopted dolls. They made fun of your religions, and you embraced dolls. Who taught you to hate your hair texture? Who taught you to hate the color of our skin so much that you bleach her to be like a white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose? 
and the shape of your lips. Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet? Who taught you to hate your nature, hating the land of your ancestors, hating the race you belong to so much you don't want to stand next to each other? When will we wake up? Sister Eleanor, your response. Uh, uh, Kwame Ture uh, said it uh, so well in the video that we uh, watched and listened to last week, the fact that uh, neocolonialism has left many African leaders comfortable with just simply satisfying themselves in their pocket and and that's it. They're not concerned with building factories and the industrialization of their of their countries. So uh, we see uh, a disorganized Africa. We see an economically disorganized Africa. Now the AU has an opportunity to work collectively and to stand as one hand. For example, it could impact the way the uh, Zionist state of Israel would handle uh, Africa. If they, if they, if, if Senegal votes against against uh, uh, Israeli apartheid and Israel uh, pulls out, then uh, Israel would have to, if we were working collectively through the AU then Israel would have to get out of a many of everywhere else they have contracts. So part of it is neocolonialism and the impact that that's having on Africa and uh, developing strong democracies uh, or developing strong governments and developing uh, a strong uh, African Union is essential to the advancement of Africa in the 21st century. Uh, it's just as you were talking about uh, banking in 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 the U.S. Um, uh, previously. Um, you know, if if you're having a problem with the bank, make sure that you invest in credit unions and banks and entities that you are aware of. You know who owns and operates them and you know what interest they serve, whether they're giving your neighbor a mortgage or whether they're giving you a loan or a new car. You know, there needs to be equity. So in terms of what's going on in Africa right now, just the impact of neocolonialism has disenfranchised Africa at such a phenomenal rate that uh, we are depending on the newly reorganized AU to uh, come about and, and operate, as I said, as one hand, one, one glove, instead of having several small countries with small economies working individually, you have several countries working together and making an impact. On on their development and growth. 
you know, do you, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, if you have uh, uh, um, uh, the Congo as well as uh, seven other countries working together on one one objective, then their outcome would be different when if we're just all um, acting individually. So collective uh, collective action is what's needed, and the AU right now is the uh, I see it as a, a viable instrument um, for the the economic development of Africa in the 21st century. Thank you, sister. Thank you, sister Eleanor. Brother Moses, you know they're going to tell us we need to own a piece of that rock. But when they say own that piece of the rock, we as conscious Africans understand that we don't have a rock. We have a home called Africa. And we must be able to be empowered and control that home. So what do you make of this whole question of why everybody else is running towards trying to control Africa? African people, they are missing the boat. They run everywhere else but back home. Your response to that scenario, Brother Moses? Yeah, um, um, I'm 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 uh, impressed with the history history and the scientific um, knowledge that's being put to the scrutiny of this this problem. Uh, um, um, you know, I I um I in terms of you know Africa. Um, um historically i guess that's that's it's a historical uh, uh, historical materialism must come into play at some point and um and so so you know i don't i don't identify with the with the um the whole um bottom line of, of um there's no, there's no newfound land here in, in in the in the northern hemisphere or whatever you call this place, uh, um, the fatherland as opposed to the motherland, and um, so that's that's my problem. Uh, um, um, I like to think it's 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 it's, uh, it's um, not. It's not an antagonistic contradiction, but it, but it's a contradiction among the people, and um, and that um, that uh, I support Pan African movement and definitely objective scientific socialism. Of course, I support scientific socialism, and uh, um, and so United Africa around scientific socialism would be ideal. Uh, uh, meanwhile, here in the belly of the beast. We got to deal with with the fact that we are here in the belly of the beast, and and that gives us a more of a responsibility than the, somebody who's not here. Uh, uh, and um, so we, you know, I guess organization is the key, and that's and that's that's the the bottom line. Organization of being organized. Uh, um, because the task is immense. The the, they say the mass movement requires a mass consciousness, and um, 
Um, I don't know, but in terms of, I'm not, I'm not the the on the back to Africa bandwagon, so to speak. Uh, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. This is Brother Africa. You listen to Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to go to a Revolutionary Culture break. As we play our music, we're going to make our transition to part two, Kwame Ture and Liberation. After our Revolutionary Culture break, you will hear Brother Kwame Ture giving his analysis on how our people may liberate themselves and feed themselves. And after that presentation, we'll come back with our political panelists and analysts, and we will have a discussion on that particular narrative. So right now, we're going to have a revolutionary break, and when we come back, our panelists and analysts will be discussing Kwame Ture and liberation. This is Africa on the Moon. Oh! 
water and chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. To get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been. And made it through my journey, yeah. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Pellerino. A bloodline across the waters. From Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Good evening. My guest obviously doesn't need much of an introduction. Suffice it to say that when you say the words black power, his image immediately comes to mind. Or, for that matter, if you remember the words hell no, we won't go from the Vietnam War era, you'll also remember him. But there always was and still is much more to Kwame Ture than that. So now you'll renew your relationship with Kwame Ture as I will mine. Good to have you aboard. My brother, it's good to be here. Many people do not know how long ago you changed your name. It's been more than 10 years. At least it was in the middle of the 70s, exactly. That you took the name Kwame Ture. They also may not be familiar with the fact that you live in Kanakrigini and may not know what you do there. Do you talk about that? Well, I have been living there since uh, 1969 and uh, just uh, working to do the best we can to organize uh, our people so that Africa can be unified. You have, in more recent years, been affiliated with the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Are you still affiliated? I am still affiliated with the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, which was founded by Kwame Nkrumah, whose objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, and whose ideology is Nkrumism to raisin. And I shall stay with this party for a while. What are you now doing in the United States? Whether the Democratic Party and electoral politics do not solve our problems, at least until we are organized. So even if we were inside the Democratic Party, our functioning uh, stalwarts in that party have a responsibility to at least organize the masses of our people. Because you cannot tell me that Kennedy and a sharecropper from Mississippi are in the same party with the same power because they got one vote each. That makes no sense at all. Um, I'm reminded that I should probably mention names when I, when I say things like former colleagues. I'm talking about people like John Lewis, who was also a former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is now a member of Congress from the state of Georgia. Talking about John Wilson, who was the chairman of the District of Columbia City Council, another organizer for SNCC. Do you still maintain contact with your colleagues? Do you ever get a chance to see them? Uh, once in a while, if our paths cross, but uh, I'm still doing the same thing they used to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm better at it. <laughs> but you are known to not make your political differences personal. When you, when you run into to, to old friends, many of whom have chosen electoral politics, a few have chosen, like H. Rab Brown, religion mm -hmm. as the major vehicle for expressing their consciousness, you still have cordial relations. Of course, you know, uh, there's no need to be antagonistic. Uh, me, I never get mad unless I'm about to kill, and I don't get mad at anyone except someone who's truly exploiting my people, and for them, there's no, no problem here. Let's go back to the telephone. Call with you. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good evening, Kojo and Kwame Ture. Uh, during the Persian Gulf War, why has the news media conveniently overlooked the fact that one million Palestinians are under house arrest in the occupied territories in Israel? 
So yeah. obviously some media isn't overlooking it. Everybody who's watching this just heard it. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, press in America, of course, is controlled by uh, Zionism. That's clear. And uh, this book, uh, this is not a statement I make. There's a book by a Jewish man. And uh, let me I'll think of the title of the book as we go along. And he's written the book. He's anti-Zionist because there are Jews who are anti-Zionist. And for the man who called before and said he couldn't understand, I would suggest that he read uh, Lenny Brenner's book, uh, any of Lenny Brenner's book, who is a Jew who is anti-Zionist. And uh, this man who is, I think... Uh, he's even on this show when my name is... The name just gone. From Lenny Brenner. I'm sorry. Okay. Lenny, Lenny Brenner. Brenner. Okay. And uh, the, the other book I will think about as we go along. I'll give it to you. But okay. uh, the reason why is because uh, the Zionist controls the press. They control the press and they uh, don't let any information out that what they consider will make the people sympathetic to the cause of the Palestinians. Saddam Hussein has called for linkage to his withdrawal from Kuwait to a Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories. Do you think that is valid? He's absolutely correct. This again is another hypocrisy of America. Here they, they are next to the land, they are occupying the land, and you talk that you're coming against annexation and you leave them there? Why? You know, George Bush, he talks like he's bad, like he's a CIA agent, but he's afraid of Israel. When they say jump, he says, how high? <laughs> <laughs> you have mentioned that the United States in this war is on the wrong side. You have said they should have let Saddam Hussein keep Kuwait. But you must know that the American people have been hearing all kinds of things about Saddam Hussein, including the chemical warfare used against the Kurdish people in Iraq at the time, and it is felt that Saddam Hussein should not be associated with the cause of righteousness. How do you feel about that? America cannot be the judge of moral righteousness for anybody. Uh, don't you know the French have something they call full discussion? That's a, a discussion that, that has no sense at all. If you're not careful, they will bring problems to you which are not yours, for you be discussing these problems that have no relevance at all. America cannot be moral judge of anyone. So anytime America speaks of morality, why pay attention? It's like if a thief is coming to give you lessons on how not to thief. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the telephone. Caller, it's your turn. You're on the air. Go ahead. Conscious, becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist uh, Convention yeah so many of them the National Baptist Convention <laughs> as a matter of fact if my memory serves me correctly now and I remember it was Mohammed speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble yeah. and of course King lost the man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson 
He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. 
So when they came, they didn't say to the queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they're anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Ah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock. Thank you. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words: black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one: Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is 
the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> it will be solved. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, foundation was falling. It was just falling. Couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. 
So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come. And With our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then, for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. 
When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they'll people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture, he was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> they said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like, I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active inactions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. Right. If your people are being raped, and you're looking at television, enjoying your time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. Right. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides itself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> so my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She'd be a little Cuba because Cuba's a poor country. Big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. So they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whoop them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning, look here, 
They've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. situation. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education. Not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire them up. Shoot them all. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on Moon. As you have been listening to Brother Kwame Ture as he speaks to the essence of struggling for our liberation and unification as a people. We will be discussing this issue with our political panelists and analysts in a few minutes, but before we do that, we have a few announcements we'd like to share with you, and uh, hopefully you take care of some notes and uh, uh, pay attention to these important announcements. We first, we'd like to bring Brother Haki back in before we make an announcement on Africa on the Move in collaboration with the African Women's Association tour to Cuba before we give you that information. We just would like to bring Brother Haki in who represents the African Women Association, and just give us a little bit of um, update on why it's important that they are going to Cuba and why we should come and support our brothers and sisters in Cuba. Brother Haki, can you enlighten our people a little bit on the importance of Cuba and why we should be in support and solidarity of the Cuban people and their revolution? Well, you know, Brother Africa, you know, Cuba is the embodiment, you know, of what society could be. Uh, one of the things, you know, when you look at it in terms of the uh, the, 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 uh, the very fabulous achievements of, of uh, Cuba, whether it be economic, whether they be uh, social or political, when you look at these achievements, then one thing is very, very clear. Cuba has the kind of institutions that uh, that really is, really is the epitome of uh, all that's good with, with, with society. Now, if we contrast Cuba with what's going on in America, then clearly there is a real a great disconnect in terms of the two. Uh, Cuba, on the one hand, values humanity, and as a consequence, is reflected in terms of the achievements of the people. In America, supposedly we're rich, one of the richest countries in the world, probably the second richest in the world, when you look at it in terms of the business conditions that people are subjected to on a, on a daily basis, it gives one pause in terms of you know, just how viable this, this system is. So Cuba is an example that we that you know that uh, that 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 is a real testament in terms of you know what the world could be, and so by going there and supporting the Cuban people and the opportunity to observe the Cuban people and actually talk to them, then we get a deeper understanding in terms of why institutions are so indispensable in terms of bringing the, the, the idyllic kind of society. So Cuba is so Cuba gives us that example. So 
And one of the things I encourage people to do is that when you're there to ask even, you know, any questions that you may have, irrespective of, you know, your, your perception, raise the questions with Cubans. So one of the things that Cubans are very, very aware in terms of what's going on throughout the world, and if you contrast that with America, uh, most people tend not to understand much about what's going on in the world. But in, in the context of Cuba, the people tend to be international, internationally minded. And so as, as such, uh, it speaks to the, 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 the prevalence of the, uh, the, 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 the notion of education in Cuban society. So clearly going to Cuba, uh, you know, uh, is, is enlightening. So I encourage people to go to Cuba first and foremost to see for themselves exactly what makes Cuba such a great place. And to understand why Cuba is, for the Americans, the embodiment of all that is wrong, simply because Cuba dare to expose America for its hypocrisy. So I encourage people to go to Cuba, see for themselves firsthand, ask those questions in terms of, you know, of Cuba, uh, and, 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 and make the decision for yourself in terms of the viability of Cuba. Because one of the things that when we talk about the indispensable amounts of, of propaganda that, circ- that circulates in society around Cuba, we understand there's a lot of misconceptions in terms of what Cuba's all about. So we encourage people to go to Cuba firsthand and see for themselves, talk to the Cuban people, uh, learn their, some of their secrets, apply some of their secrets back here, and make for a better society. So we encourage people to definitely go to Cuba to see for themselves firsthand what will make Cuba such a great place. And you can do that by joining Africa on the Move in conjunction with the African Awareness Association. <laughs> as they take their annual Black History Education and Culture Travel Challenge Tour to Cuba. The dates are from July the 23rd to July the 31st, leaving from Cancun, Mexico. For more information, you can visit our website at www.aaa-cubatours.com. Or you can call 804-549-7492 or 202-714-9435 or just email the African Awareness Association 2 at Gmail. That's spelled all together. So, again, come and check out. Show your love for your brothers and sisters in Cuba. Cuba has done so much for Africa and African people. So, again, to make that move right now. Next, we'd like to bring in our brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, one of the things we like to do is always give people information that they can use as a tool for liberation. And one of the things we have been privy to this weekend, there is an organization, Pan African New, Pan African Roots, and from the barricades, Brother Bob Brown, who mm-hmm. has been a true warrior, a true Pan Africanist and a revolutionary who have been fighting for liberation of our people probably for over 70 years of his life. And he has given us a pointer, a way to maybe view what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, and we would like to share his message that he sent to the world the other day. Brother Anthony, can you read that statement for us? Certainly. Uh, This is an open letter to the people of Africa, the Africa diaspora, and the world by Bob Brown, dated February 26, 2022. Victory to Russia and the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. 
see Russian military attack on Ukraine, how we got there. There are moments in history that are fatal if let let slip by. This is one such moment for Pan-African roots and Bob Brown. There are moments when silence becomes betrayal of the principles in which we believe. When we must choose sides, Ukraine is one such moment for Bob Brown. I know the price I will have to pay for this decision and prepare to pay it. I do not pretend to speak for anyone and prepare to stand alone. I know the price so many people have paid and continue to pay for daring to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. In 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King, SCLC, and the pacifist and nonviolent wings of the movement demanded peace in Vietnam. Several leftist forces demanded bring the boys home. Muhammad Ali and the Nation of Islam said it simpler and more eloquent. I ain't got no war with Vietnam. And the Vietnamese never called me a nigger. Osashifo Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown for daring to go to China and Vietnam in search for peace and ultimately for the victory of oppressed humanity. The radical and revolutionary wing of SNCC and SDS shouted, hell no, we ain't going. Smash the draft and victory to the Viet Cong. I did not go to Vietnam. The draft was smashed, and the Vietnamese won. I know the price they paid for this victory. I know the price that Russia paid during World War One and World War Two. The United States and Western imperialism has been at war with Russia since the Russian Revolution of 1917. The United States and its agents and co-conspirators are waging war and co-interpro and co-interpro-like operations in every corner of Africa, the African diaspora, and the world. Enough is enough. My slogan is consistent and simple. Victory to Russia and the Russian and Ukrainian people. I know that I am correct principally. Perhaps you know it as well. I respect the right of other forces on the left to have their perspective and to pursue their strategy and tactics, even if they disagree and dis- with and disrespect me. God blesses the child who has his or her own. Success to the current wave of study, work, and action in the eternal quest for peace and justice. I do not respect the policies or practices of the U.S. government or any of its agents and co-conspirators, regardless of the color, gender, language, or spirituality. I've heard that bullshit before. 
I do not agree with or respect the Clintons, Obama, Biden, or Harris, Bush, or Trump. And I asked the question we asked of LBJ in 1968. How many have you killed? And how many are you killing today? They were not principled or right in 1968. They are not principled or right in 2022. And they will never be principled or right. The anti-people's forces are on the offensive in every corner of the world. Enable and empower the people to go to Zoom and the barricades in every corner of Africa, the African diaspora, and the world. Any way and every way you can. Give peace, nonviolence, and diplomacy a chance. Give defensive war, people's war, and just war a chance as well. Victory to oppress humanity by any and all means necessary, available, and principled. Stay safe and strong, Bob Brown. And we also would like to make you aware that the Pan-African Root Publishers has published volume one and two books titled We Demand a Full Disclosure and Digitalization of All Slavery Era Records. Volume one and two by Bob Brown. If you'd like to publish those excellent books, please do so by going to the website, www.a-aprp.cc.org. So those are our announcements for today's program. We now will continue our discussion as relates to part two of our theme, Kwame Ture and Liberation. You have just heard some of Kwame Ture's positions on various issues and topics as it relates to our people striving towards getting that liberation and, uni- and becoming unified. Um, I start off with two come to you, Brother Anthony, since you are a continuator and heritor on the life of works of Brother Kwame Ture. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in his presentation was this issue of understanding how people making a difference between struggling for issues versus struggling against systems. Can you elaborate the importance of those dichotomy, issues versus systems, when you're talking about a people trying to be free? Brother Anthony. Okay. When people struggle against issues, they are struggling against the symptoms of capitalism, which is the enemy of all humanity. And, uh, and uh, we have to understand as a people that our oppression is systemic, is caused by system, capitalism in all of its manifestations including racism, Zionism, settler colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism. And, uh, and uh, we need permanent organization in order to, to defeat our enemies and obtain our liberation. Those were some of the points that I think uh, Kwame Ture made in, his, in excerpts from his presentations. 
One is that we must be organized as a people and also uh, students and youth are the spark of the revolution. So it is critically important that we organize them especially. And Brother Haki, as they organize yourself, can you talk about the importance of our people recognizing that there's a big difference between mobilization versus organization. When you talk about mobilization, you talk about doing things temporary. And when you talk about organization, you talk about doing things on a permanent basis. You often talk about the importance of building institutions. Can you speak to our people that why it's important for us to be organized and not just mobilized? As relates to we, as relates to we trying to achieve our liberation and unification as a people, brother Haki, your response. Yeah, well, clearly one of the things when we talk about this whole question in terms of organization versus mobilization, first and foremost, we have to understand, you know, fundamentally, is that you know the the, the adversary, our enemies, are very organized, and they're organized around the clock. If we're sincere in terms of defeating them, then we have to be equally organized 24 hours a day. Uh, one of the things in terms, one of the drawbacks in terms of organization is that it means that uh, aside from your know, daily activities in terms of you know, just your, your search you know, to survive, uh, a certain amount of your time has to be dedicated toward terms of the pursuit of organization. I think for a lot of people that is, that is a pitfall. They feel like they can't accommodate too. But the problem is that when you talk about oppression or the level of oppression that the African people in particular face in society, that it seems to me that the, the question around organization, irrespective of the hardships they may impose, is a necessity. Uh, one of the things when we talk about in terms of the, the impending doom in terms of capitalism, in terms of how it functions, then we got to understand that as this thing declines, then we have to understand that first and foremost, the people in positions of power already perceive African people as the enemy. Uh, for for political reasons, uh, one of the things is very easy from a historical perspective to scapegoat African peoples for the problems of society. And in particular, when you talk about in American society, we talk about 50 percent of the population who are pretty much, you know, far right. Then this propensity in terms of to act on racism uh, exists, and because the propensity to act on racism is so strong among 50 percent of the population, government. Manipulation is very easily received by a large number of people. And so in that context, and we talk about the struggles that African people face and the potentials in terms of real danger coming our way, we got to understand this is not hyperbole. This is not some exaggeration that we understand from a historical point of view, that we understand that society's decline, you know, all type of, uh, all type of, uh, of um, uh, uh, kind of injustices that are going to be perpetrated, you know, within, within that society. And so in the context of America, we understand that historically African people have always been the, the scapegoat for society's problems. We understand that's deteriorates, then we clearly should understand that African people are, in fact, going to be the scapegoat in terms of the problems that society faces. Now, even though these problems are a result of how the system operates, uh, the bottom line is that because of propaganda and the ability to create a narrative, a narrative which says that the problem is not how the system operates, the problem is those others, then people who gravitate toward that message uh, certainly can be easily manipulated in terms of carrying out attacks against people who are perceived, quote-unquote, as the other or the enemy. 
Uh, so credit organizations are very key. And one of the things, so Brother Africa, I think to some extent, and Brother, Brother Kwame didn't, didn't raise this, but one of the things when you talk about organization versus mobilization, uh, one of the things is that when, when, when you talk about, you know, organization, um, you know, um, the, the, the thing is that, you know, um, even in the context of organizations as they currently exist, there's a sort of sectarian string, a sort of string that says that, you know, my my ideology or my objective is more important than your ideology or your more objective. And we don't see the relevance in terms of, you know, these, these movements. And my position is that you know, there are relevance in all these movements. And the question for people who are involved in these movements is to understand the relevance of these organizations and to and, and to come together to have these discourse, these discussions around which way to best facilitate, you know, your organization's positions in terms of how to bring about change in society. But one of the problems is that, you know, because of sectarianism that exists in the minds of so many people who are convinced that their ideology, their objective is much more pertinent and much more important than others, there's a tendency among those in the movement to actually not to engage in discourse around critical discussions, which are so critical in terms of bringing about unity, to bring about an end uh, to this crazy capitalist system. So clearly that all that mitigates against organization. Or like Kwame said, mobilization, of course, is very, very easy because one of the things is that, you know, uh, it ties into this whole question in terms of identity politics. You know, in a society, often we talk about uh, uh, animal rights. Uh, we talk about um, environmental disaster. We talk about uh, women's rights. We talk about a whole litany of, of, of different kinds of uh, concerns, which which, get, which which revolves around identity. None of it really question the terms of the system. So we have to have some critique that definitively looks at the system, analyze how the system works, and to get people to understand concretely that given how the system how the system system operates, that it has to have it has, the response has to be a very a very structured, a very uh, conscious response. You know, for the masses of the people, in terms of overcoming these kind of uh, maladies, uh, particularly when, particularly when we talk about um, the, the 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 very destructive nature of the system itself, you know, as it, as it manifests itself in terms of you know um, hurting so many many people. Uh, so clearly, brother, after this question of organization versus mobilization is key, and uh, is the, the many reasons to precipitate against you know uh, organization, but nonetheless, uh, given the reality, we have to understand that organization is key. And, in, in, and as you alluded to, when you talk about building those institutions, uh, institutions themselves are in, explicit in terms of long term. So when we talk about long term and we talk about this fight is, is, is protracted, it's not something that you, you come to some, some meeting in your march and at the end of that. It means that you have to continue this, this process in terms of trying to get people to understand the necessity in terms of organization, necessity in terms of confronting these evils, and necessity of taking a stand when it's necessary in terms of confronting a lot of these evils that exist in society. So clearly organization is key, and, of course, we encourage people to go about their business of building those organizations. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, do you buy into, the, into this logic which states, if your people are oppressed, and you are not doing anything to help achieve or alleviate their oppression, then by your own inactivity, you are against your people. Where do you stand on that position, Brother Moses? Well, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. So, like, um, if you're not actively trying to liberate your people, 
then you are part of the problem. There's no middle ground there. Okay, and so Eleanor, your response to that? My response to would you would you state the question, please? Your response to this issue of if your people are oppressed and you are not doing anything to alleviate depression, the oppression of your people, then by your own inactivity, you are against your people. You're you're clearly a part of the problem, uh, Brother Africa. But um, I was uh, thinking of some things at hand uh, as a as a human rights activist and uh, as an artist, um, I'm concerned with this whole thing happening in the Ukraine right now, Brother Africa. And uh, I I stand in solidarity with the the people right now because what, what seems to be happening for myself uh, I would ask the government, uh, I would ask the Re- Russian Federation to immediately uh, cease fire and to use diplomacy as a way to address the issues concerning uh, a peace and security in uh, in these two regions of the Ukraine uh, called Dunsnik, or I'm not sure if Dunsnik, D-O-N-E-T-S-K, and uh, the other S U H A N S K. I I just think that right now, Brother Africa, we have to oppose any act of war that any nation state or or international actor uh uh promotes. Uh I I'm opposed to the whole culture of violence based on you know, this permanent militarization and armament and that we see uh, going on, uh, uh, you know, inciting the public, you know, causing global fear. Uh, nobody's benefiting but the big war machines and the producers of big weaponry and this kind of thing. They, they have to pull out of Afghanistan, so they're already beefing up. And we also see the problems of Belarus that had gone, you know, no one was addressing the issues in Belarus, and it borders the Ukraine and Russia. So we see right now, um, uh, I think the people have to stand up, and I feel like I just have to stand up and say that I stand in solidarity with uh, uh, the people of the Ukraine, and I stand in solidarity with 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 and I urge all nations, states, and all governments of the world to work towards peace, and that any time we create war, we not only destroy human life but we destroy the planet. And it's time it's time that we stop supporting these capitalist ventures that uh, that this war machine. Uh, utilizes around the world, and I, I just think I, I had to say that this evening that uh, uh, you know a culture of violence based on some kind of permanent 
military development and that we need this uh, increased armament and, and and we need to construct some kind of uh, uh, military force to protect uh, ourselves from uh, someone else such as Russia. I think it's outrageous, and I think that we need to have some diplomatic negotiation go on going on right now, Brother Africa. I feel so much fear and anxiety as just an individual because I'm concerned about what 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 President Biden might do. I'm concerned about what Pushkin is doing, and we we just need to stop this global militarization and demand that the uh, nation states, the world governments get together and negotiate and bring an end to this violence. And yes, when you Thank fail you. to do when you fail to do nothing when something happens in your community or happens to your people, then you are clearly a part of the problem. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Um, other other panelists can weigh in, but I would um, just like to make a response to this notion of um, about this notion about against walls and all walls. There are such things as the people wall, a just wall. We know at some point in time the reality is there will be contradictions and there will be battles that may not be able to, to resolve them like diplomatic beings. Now, I am not one of the people that would make a judgment against Russia in terms of saying they didn't want a diplomatic beings. I am not one to take that position based upon my understanding of its history. Ongoing battle, as Brother Haki alluded to earlier at the beginning of the program, Ever since 1917, the West has always tried to find ways to undermine and dominate the people in that region, in the area uh, that they call Russia. I also know that in this world, the West have gone all over the world to create issues where there will be conflict. And I know that in this battle geopolitical struggle, no country going to set back and allow themselves to be in a position of being vulnerable or being in a position to be dominated. For example, Sister Eleanor, do you think the U.S. would stand by and allow a country to come in and dominate or set up camp in Mexico, in Cuba, in Venezuela? What do you think this government response would be? Absolutely not, Brother Africa. But right now, I'm just talking about, as you said, the geopolitical and uh, financial interests of warmongers. And I'm not talking about Russia as the main warmonger. I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about the U.S. I'm talking about uh, not to you, Sister Eleanor, but also to those who take the position that they are against war mongling. Uh, they're also against the walls where they are exploiting people, exploitation all over the world. What about the war that's been going on against African people here and abroad? 
Where are the wall mugglers at? What about this whole question of this question of wall property that they are inflicted on the world to these embargoes? Where are these same people who argue against the against wall? Just the kind of things I think our people have to be more critical as they look at the world. That's the point I just raised. Well, Brother Africa, I'm opposed to apartheid in Israel, so these people have to fight for their for their liberty. I'm opposed to what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. I'm opposed to the uh, political uh, uh, situation in Afghanistan where the people are subjected to freezing and hunger. No, Brother Africa, I'm not standing up for oppression. I'm not saying that we should all just roll over and be happy. I'm just talking about right now in this very situation, us having us, the people, the, the uh, these global governments, this NATO, to get more factual information out there and stop pushing the war machine, the buildup of armament in the NATO nations right now, the militarization of the European continent. It's, 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 it's outrageous, and I think Lockheed Martin and Halliburton and a few big old companies are the ones that are gaining from this. Bill Gates with his contract with the Department of Defense. Brother Africa, we have to stand up, and we have to, I believe that we have to stand in solidarity with the people. This is, this, this, this is uh, uh, too much. You know, as Kwame, and Kuna was, uh, uh, Kwame was talking about uh, neocolonialism and the impact it's had, on 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 Africa, we we want to see justice in the world, brother Africa. I just simply are talking about the harmful repercussions of the situation in the last several days on planet Earth. Right now, we have people dying from mudslides and everything else and we're not thinking about the earth we're not thinking about the health of anyone we're just thinking about war and military i will open up the mic to the rest of our panelists for the day and we're not going to make it becomes a a dialogue between me and you but we want you to keep something think think about and different perspectives now to my panelists i will open this up to the rest of the panelists but i do say this when we talk about walls, Africa has been in wall ever since the first coming of people from the outside, as well as inside. So when we talk about walls, are we talking about the continued war that's still going on in the Congo, the continued war that's still going on in Alexandria, they call it South Africa, the continued war that's still going on against African people here in the West. So I don't hear the same kind of sentiments. That's all. Brother Anthony, Haki, Moses, I'll open up the mic. We'd like to hear your thoughts before we close out tonight on Brother Conway and this question of liberation. Go ahead, Brother Anthony. Certainly. Um, uh, uh, if you recall the open letter uh, to the people of Africa and the African diaspora world, uh, and the world that I read from uh, Brother Bob, I think it's clear. 
Uh, let's see if you uh, if if anyone is against uh, NATO NATO expansion, which all peace loving and justice loving people should be, then uh, then you uh, you should want victory for Russia, the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. Uh, because uh, uh, right now, uh, because uh, the media is controlled by capitalists, that is the only conflict we're hearing about. There are other conflicts going on in the world that are just as devastating. Uh, the one in Congo was the case in point. Uh, the uh, the ongoing war in the Zania, South Africa, uh, for people's genuine liberation, and the wars going on in the African diaspora over the impression that we have suffered under capitalism for nearly 500 years. No one is talking about those conflicts right now because... The imperialist media is calling the shots on the issues we focus on, but uh, but in any country on the planet has the right to its sovereignty, uh, to its defense, and that's why uh, it's important that Russia and Ukraine are victorious in this conflict. And also, uh, and also, we must oppose to ex- the expansion of NATO because that'll make things harder uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for people struggling for justice worldwide. And speaking about this issue of war, it was just recently um, came to light this past day or so. We know that Cuban Foreign Affairs issued a statement to give the world a better understanding of this so-called war between Russia and Ukraine, and their information and statements being blocked by Western media. Who can talk about that war? That war failed. Brother Haki? Talk to me. Well, Brother Africa, maybe there is a, a misunderstanding in terms of the terms that we're using. Maybe we have to, maybe me in particular, have to clarify some of the terms I'm using. I'm assuming that certain terms people know and I don't have to elaborate. But let, just just for clarity, let me just elaborate just a little bit. When, when I talk about geopolitical strategies, what I'm essentially talking about is, is geopolitical strategies for the sole purpose in terms of maintaining domination of the world. Part of maintaining domination in the world is the use of, of force and violence. In the case of Ukraine, uh, one of the things is that we got to understand that you know when it comes to Russia, you know the West sees Russia as a as a, a in, inherent threat because Russia's history in terms of promoting communism throughout the world, which means that it sees a world in which you know uh, working people uh, deserve the dignity, uh, and that when it comes to sharing the profits that Everybody should share in the profits. Capitalism doesn't see that way. Capitalism sees a system in which few individual rights prevail, and the exploitation of your fellow human being is natural and right, 
and along as it leads to being along leads to being you leads to being pro, uh, making profit. So when we talk about the geopolitical strategy the case of Ukraine, I think one of the things that we have to understand is that you know uh, you know there was an agreement back in the nineties between the U.S. and uh, and um, the Soviet Union, the 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 the, 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 the Soviet Union, as currently as um, now. Um, the current Russia uh, is faced with the task in terms of, you know, survival. Because what's happening is that the United States, with its Western allies, in particular the, the NATO, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, they are, in fact, they're on Russia's border. And what they're doing is they're creating a provocation between Ukraine and Russia. In Ukraine, you got, in Donetsk and Luhansk, you have these people who identify with the Russians who want to be part of the Russian Federation. Well, the U.S. sees this as a herring threat, and so what they're doing is they're creating a, a provocation between Ukraine and Russia around this whole question in terms of these people attempting, you know, to be part of Russia. Uh, it's not that Russia is initiating the violence or the aggression. It's the U.S., and the U.S. does it for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the, historically, the U.S. has been successful in terms of making sure that Russia that Russia expends a, 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 tremendous, a tremendous amount of money in terms of warfare. It was a successful strategy. In fact, one of the reasons why Russia had to, to uh, capitulate to America was because they spent too much money in terms of war. U.S. propaganda was effective in convincing the Russian people uh, that, you know, that you got to match spending with the U.S. Uh, in terms of making sure the U.S. is not in a position to militarily overthrow Russia, and so therefore Russia continues to spend lots and lots of money for that sole purpose. Of course, it was part of a ploy. But see, here's the thing. The U.S., because they can arbitrarily print money up uh, in position strategically to create, uh, to, 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 to finance wars and to military har- hardware, Russia doesn't have that same advantage. And so Russia, being somewhat at a, at a disadvantage, uh, spent lots and lots of money in terms of the accumulation of military weaponry in, a, in the event America decided to attack Russia. It did. It did. It, it caused the Russian economy to collapse, and the U.S. was very successful in terms of doing that. The Russians learned from that mistake. They won't do that again. Secondly, uh, we have to understand that when it comes to when it comes to someone at your at your door, someone right at your border, uh, being financed by the United States. In this particular case, we talk about Ukraine being financed by the U.S. Not only monetarily, but we're talking about term military hardware being sent, both offensive and defensive weaponry being sent to Ukraine for the sole purpose of threatening Russia, what do you think Russia's going to do? What choices do they have? Because the provocations are very, very real. But again, the U.S. benefits from these provocations, and they want those provocations. So when we talk about we want peace, we want a just world, you know, if you really want peace and just world, then you've got to destroy capitalism. That's another way to put it. I, I, thought we were making it so, I thought we were making it pretty clear with these discussions around what the, the, the intrinsic evils in terms of capitalism, but apparently we're not making the argument clear enough. So now let me just be more succinct and say clearly that if you want peace in the world, then you have to destroy capitalism. And so the whole point in terms of he said, it's not the Ukrainian people have a problem. The Ukrainian people don't have a problem. That's not the problem. The problem is that you got the, the President Zelensky who's being, who's being corrupted and, and deceived you know, by Western powers, you see. Uh, it's just like it's just like a lot of leaders around the world. We all talk about corruption in Africa, but you got corruption throughout the world. And so you got leaders like Zelensky who are willing to play ball because he's going to he's going to be compensated from playing ball. And historically, it's always been the case. All the Ukrainian politicians 
always received huge, huge uh, uh, amounts of money from the U.S. government in terms of playing ball. And so from a geopolitical point of view, we understand that there can be no peace as long as capitalism exists. Western nations play this game because they understand as long as you can create instability in the world, as long as you can keep people fighting each other, as long as you can keep people hating each other, as long as you can keep people poor, as long as you can keep people uneducated, as long as you can keep people hopeless, then the Western nations prevail. And that is a strategy. It's part of a geopolitical strategy. So there is no peace without destruction of capitalism. You can talk about peace all day long, but as long as capitalism exists, there can be no peace because it's not predicated on peace. Remember earlier we talked about the fact that we talk about uh, uh, debt is money. Well, if you had peace, there was no money to be had if they had peace. If everybody lived together, everybody ate, everybody had food, shelter, education, things that they need, there'd be no, there'd be no excess profits to be had. So you want instability, you want fighting, you want all this stuff because it generates debt. And generating debt, it cre- it cre- increase money. Increase, increase, in creating money, you create more, more money for the wealthy. That's what capitalism is all about. So there is no peace as long as capitalism exists. So we got to stop fooling ourselves and thinking, you know, that somehow if 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 if, if, we, if we just support the Ukrainian people, then it's going to be all right. Without understanding that the catalyst or the, the people who are actually responsible for initiating all this destruction in in in, the, in between Russia and Ukraine is Western countries, in particular the United States and the UK. They are particularly responsible. And you got to understand that when you talk about the decline of the Western economy, particularly when you talk about the decline of the West of the United States, then you got to understand that this decline is real. Despite, despite centuries of, of having it their way, the bottom line is these countries are hard-pressed to provide for their people. All the contradictions, all the problems in terms of, you know, you know how money is created, who gets the money, how the money is spent, all of that is creating problems for Western, Western, Western powers. They have no other recourse but more and more war, not just in the Ukraine but throughout the world. Look at, look at poor Africa. They got more military bases in poor Africa than any other place on the planet. Look at the military intervention in, in Africa. Look at all them going to Africa. A country like Ethiopia simply said, listen, we want to have single control in terms of our finances, so we don't want the IMF loans or the World Bank loans. Precipitates what? Western or U.S. aggression. So they send military to, to, to Ethiopia to, 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 to throw a coup to get rid of the president who's currently in power, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed, 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 to get rid of him who's in, in power in Ethiopia. So we got to be, let's be honest with ourselves to understand. We, we have to start thinking deeper. I don't know how, I can't make it any clearer. If we don't understand how capitalism works, and we see this, 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 we see this, we see this violence, we see this, this, these wars, we see this stuff manifested all the time. When we look at America and we look at it in terms of the, the inequality, the racism, the poverty, and we look at it in terms of people that have access to food, people that have access to shelter, what is the problem? Why is it that we, we fail, we refuse to see that there is a catalyst, there is some process behind that that make all this stuff possible? That catalyst, that process for all this inequality and suffering and war and destruction and disease, it's a direct result of capitalism. It benefits from all of that. So when we talk about geopolitical designs, let's be very, very clear. You know what I mean? Ukrainian people are not the issue. They're not the issue. They're just, they're just pawns. They're just pawns. It's, they have they have no problem in terms of you know you know if people want to be with, with the Russian Federation they have no problem with that that the, the, the resistance that coming from the Ukrainian people 
Resistance has come from corrupt leadership in Ukraine who are playing ball. And keep in mind, when I keep saying that the U.S. made an agreement that they would not expand NATO, that they, that, that they certainly wouldn't arm Ukraine, which is on the border of NATO. When they made those assurances, they lied. Ain't that what they always do? Ain't that what they did to the Indians when they came over here and colonized these country, these, these, this land? Tell the Indians, no problem, we're peaceful. We're not going to do anything to take your land. You know, we're going to live peacefully with you. You know, we're going to coexist. It was a damn lie. What did they do? They annihilated the Indians. They, they got a long history of doing that. There is no peace. No peace in law if capitalism exists. I can't make it any clearer. I certainly hope that makes sense to people who, who think that somehow you, somehow Russia is the issue. Russia's not the issue. Russia's economy is doing quite well, as a matter of fact. Russia's got the third largest economy on the planet. They got no incentive to go to war. They go, for them to go to war, it means it wrecks their economy. They got no incentive. It's an imperative that they do because the United States, in you know, all its provocations, are forcing Russia's hand. Russia doesn't have a choice. Russia's not the aggressor. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm no fan of, of Vladimir Putin. I'm no fan of him or his. You know, I think a lot of these, these capitalist reforms that he implemented, that he supports, I, I'm totally against. But yet, as a, as a pragmatist, I think Putin is very clear that he doesn't want a war. I mean, he, he understands that, you know, all those gains that Russia's economy has achieved are in danger of being undermined by war. So he is very, very pragmatic in that case. So if we really want peace, we really want freedom, we really want justice in the world, then you've got to destroy capitalism. All of that fiat currency, all of that stuff that make all these wars possible has to be annihilated. It has to be eliminated. Don't eliminate it, then one thing is clear. The rules of the game in terms of a principle of violence, war, and destruction is not going to change one iota. No matter what we say, we can pray to the cows come home. The bottom line is that this is capitalism, and unless it's destroyed, then this kind of wholesale destruction is just commonplace. It will continue to go on and on and on and on and on. And as an African person, one who deeply loves Africa, and to see the, 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 the destruction visited upon the continent of Africa, it makes me very, very sad. But the same token, I understand that given the kind of corruption, given the kind of individualism, the kind of opportunism that exists among African leadership, I understand that it gives Western geopolitical strategy the upper hand. So we got our work cut off for us in terms of, you know, limited, getting rid of these kind of leaders and bringing forth leaders, people who are revolutionary, people like Kwame Kwame Toure, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, Seka Toure, uh, Samoa Michelle, um, uh, Thomas Sankara, uh, uh, Zikwe, African leaders, uh, uh, um, African leaders who really care about Africa and African people, African leaders who really care about humanity. Unless we can devise some strategy in terms of making sure that those kind of people come to power, then the geopolitical designs of the West will be effective. Henceforth, there will be no freedom, there will be no justice, there will be no humanity, there will be none of that stuff. All you get is more destruction, more death, more destruction, more chaos, and more war. I hope I made that clear enough, and I close with that. You are listening to Africa on the Move. We may not tell you what you want, but we will try our best to give you what you need. We will speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. And we will give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. At this particular time, we are going to a station break. 
Hey, we're up to your culture break, and when we come back, panelists and listeners just would like for you to give us your final thoughts for tonight. Our title of our program tonight was, or is, for tonight, our title of our program is Part 2, Quality Terrain and Liberation. We'll be right back. This is the voice, Brother Africa, on Africa on the Moon. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Pick it light and pick it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. Right. 
welcome you back to Africa on the Move. This is part two, Kwame Ture and Liberation on the 27th day of February 2022. Right now, we're going back to our political panelists and analysts for the day. And we will ask each one of them to give us their final thoughts for the night. And we'll start off with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Yes, it's uh, time to wrap this thing up. Um, I think uh, it's been interesting. Uh, I think we have to we have to really take this thing about organization seriously uh, uh, in terms of uh, the objectives of what we're trying to accomplish uh, with the organization and. The objectives and the organization go hand in hand, and because um, uh, this it is a political economy, and uh, I think uh, we're just going to have to to continue this struggle. And uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you. And we thank you, Brother Moses, as always, for your contributions to today's program. And we now will go to our sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor. You'll find the thoughts for tonight. Well, I just want the uh, the public and the fellow analysts to understand that my discussion tonight was on the U.S. militarization of NATO and the building up along Russia's border, Belarus, the the Ukraine. Uh, this 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 is an outrage, and I think that we have to stand in solidarity with the people because there's a lot of disinformation out there, and the and the building up of, of military equipment in NATO nations is a problem. This is not the way the world should be moving, and the expansion of NATO. I talked about Halliburton. Uh, you know, I think of Lockheed Martin. No one benefits from this kind of escalation, but the big, big war machines here. We're a military. Military expansionism is what we seem to be about. And no, brother Africa, the U.S. wouldn't tolerate anyone uh, uh, in Mexico. Uh, pointing armament towards the U.S. or anything else. That That isn't even a question. The question is what we're doing abroad right now. I just think that uh, the public needs to be aware of it, and it is uh, we are being warmongers. It's for capitalist gain. They are our largest corporations after consumer corporations like Amazon, and the workers need to be aware of what's going on. The people need to be aware. So thank you so much, uh, fellow analysts. I hope you understood. I did bring up the Congo, the issues in the Congo. And um, right now, we just uh, have to continue to stay united and to continue to pay attention to what's going on on Mother Earth and try to protect Mother Earth 
and think about reducing our carbon footprint and know that uh, as human rights advocates and as um, as people and the ending of, of, of this wonderful month followed, founded by Carter G. Woodson, that uh, liberation, you know, education is liberation. So, you know, we take one step forward every day. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening, Brother Africa. And thank you to the fellow analysts and our listeners. And you do the same, Sister Eleanor, and we thank you for your contribution to today's program. And we will now go to Brother Haki for his final thoughts. Brother Haki. You know, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I often, you know, when I when I search the world for information, I try to find as much as I possibly can about, you know, progressive or revolutionary African leadership. Uh, I'm pleased to disclose, uh, uh, you know, to find out that Eritrea is one of those African states who is standing proud and independently and which refuses to accept INF, uh, I, uh, World Bank IMF loans. Uh, uh, in other words, the leadership position is very, very clear. Rather than be a slave for the West, you know, we have, we have developed on our own. And I really admire the Eritrean people for, for that kind of position. And I also got to give some somewhat of a shout out to the Mali, um, the, uh, the, the the Mali military, in, at least the, them, at least those in positions of leadership, in terms of that at the very least, at least they uh, oppose the uninvited foreign troops on their soil. So for them, I think that is somewhat a a, a quantitative move, uh, move forward in terms of actually telling the West, in particular France, listen, I don't want your people not invited here. Get out of my country. That's good. That shows the, 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 the sense of autonomy is alive and well in Africa, and I'm very happy to see it. Of course, there are many other things that have to change in context of what's going on in Mali, but at a very minimum, I'm at least happy to see that the provincial government of Mali at least told the French to get the hell out, and so that's good. Uh, and so it all goes to this question in terms of, you know, the importance, points of resistance. Uh, one of the things that Africa will need, you know, when we talk about in America and we talk about resistance, one of the things is a very, very, very slippery slope for a lot of people. Uh, number one, a lot of people are of the position that, in fact, this is the greatest country in the world. In fact, a lot of people have internalized a certain amount of self-hatred in which they really believe that their skin color disqualifies them from intelligent discourse, and they believe that uh, their skin color disqualifies them from in terms of working together with other people who look like themselves simply because of some kind of genetic defect. So clearly we have these kind of situations happening in the minds of our people, and it's a struggle in terms of trying to get our people to confront that which is very, very painful. Uh, one of the things when we talk about, you know, these black conservatives, and one of the things that's very, very sad is that when the, when the system uses these people to highlight, you know, the legitimacy of the system, uh, I often wonder do these people realize, you know, that they're being used to, hide, to, to you know, to legitimize the system and in the process, continue exploitation of the people who look just like them. I often wonder, do they consider that as this thing deteriorates, uh, do they really think that their status is going to protect them, you know, from the onslaught of right-wing uh, fascist groups uh, that uh, surely will be operating in the near future in this country? Do they think somehow they are immune from those attacks? Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, you know, this, this question in terms of resistance is so, so key. Uh, as Brother Kwame Touré alluded to, you know, uh, Brother Bob Brown alluded to in his, in his speech that Anthony read, 
Uh, there is, there, listen, when you resist, there was a price to pay. Nobody gets away unscathed, you know, when you resist. I mean, there's always a price to pay. But if you don't, but if, but but if but if you don't resist, the price you pay is much greater in terms of the kind of uh, the kind of massive uh, destruction of uh, uh, um, the, um, the, the 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 cruel punishment, uh, you know, of the neoliberal order, you know, that's coming our way. Uh, so clearly, brother Africa, this question in terms of resistance is key, and, and then people have to understand that whether you think as a problem or not, you know, your your best. Uh, take the time to figure out what the hell is going on in society, why it's going on in society, and what you can do to, at the very, at the very minimum, mitigate the impacts of this very deadly uh, uh, scenario that's taking place in the society. But having said that, Brother Africa is always going to encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, that is key. Uh, if we're going to strategize, if there's any chance of longevity in the society, then one thing we have to do, we have to concretely understand what it is that we're up against, what it means, and what we have to do to navigate, you know, uh, through this insanity. Uh, without without some without some organization, the situation is glim, or very 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 dim indeed. And having said that, brother Alex, I'll close. And as always, you have a good night, and we'll see you next week. And thank you, brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And we go with Brother Anthony, and we will hear his final thoughts for tonight. Brother Anthony. Uh, Thank you for having me on the program tonight, Brother Africa. And thank you as well uh, to the fellow panelists and the listening audience for taking time to check out this program tonight. And I leave you... Uh, with, with the message that it is more important than ever for us to get organized as a people. We must have permanent political organization in order to defeat all the enemies of Africa and humanity and to bring about our liberation. Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism is to meet solution to the problems Africans at home and in the diaspora face. And uh, people can find out more about our objective and program by checking out our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, you can also reach us at 202-246-4896 for more information about our objective and program. And uh, and uh, bear in mind that whatever knowledge we have, we have to share it and join an organization that is working to achieve Pan-Africanism. And the name of your organization is website again, Brother Anthony? Uh, the name of our organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our website is www.a-aprp-gc.org, and we can be reached at 
246-4896. And we thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program, all our panelists and analysts. And, of course, we thank our listening audience and our friends and supporters for allowing us to come in your homes this evening, this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for organization. And we know that the greatest weapon that our oppressed people can have is the weapon of organization. So to all my brothers and sisters, to those who want to move forward and fight against oppression, we encourage you, we encourage you, we encourage you to let's get organized. So until next time, we always go scribes go forward level and backwards level. And we're going to leave you with question for the month, which, which has been reported from the Sudan 2021 gold export exceeded $1.7 billion, about 40% of Sudan export. This came from um, the Sky News Arabia and Rutgers um, Press on the February 22nd, 2022. Now, given the fact that it has been reported that in Sudan, gold export has reached at least $1.7 billion, we come to ask you this question. Why Sudan is being viewed as a country of a country of poverty and handouts. Think about that. We we'll see you next week. This is Brother Africa, and this has been Africa on the Moon. And if we had all the money in the world, what would we do with it? If you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? So we we'll leave you with music of inspiration and liberation. We we'll see you next week.
land Welcome to Pilgrim And to the buffalo Who once ruled a plain Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more. Like the forest buried beneath the highway, never had a chance to grow. Never had a chance to grow. And now it's winter, winter in America, yes, and all of the hillers have been killed, sent away, yeah, but the people know, the people know it's winter. in America and ain't nobody fighting cause nobody knows what to say save your soul Lord knows from winter in America the constitution a noble piece of paper with free society the struggle but they died in vain and now democracy is a ragtime on the corner hoping for some rain it's looking like he's a hoping hoping for some rain and I see the robbers first in barren treetops Watching last it's races Marching across the floor But just like the peace behind That vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter in America and all of the hillers have been killed 
it's a winner. Winter in America. And all of the hillers done been killed. Sit away. Yeah, the people know, the people know it's winter. in America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows, nobody knows And 